0: good afternoon everyone and welcome to episode 53 of the retrospectives podcast my name is patrick arthur and i'm joined as always by my co-host james turlings james you ready to talk about video games again we've um done our 2020 wrap-up and mailbag episodes But now we're at the commencement of season three of the podcast and we're talking about reviewing and discussing video games again.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited to be back on the show. We've had a good break now and I'm really excited to get into talking about uh, Civilization 4. I'm actually... Quite a big fan of the series. I've played a lot of 5 and 6, although I'd say I'm a mostly casual player um, and that, you know, I'd play a game kind of like every few months or so. How about yourself? I am also
0: a casual player. I've played a lot of Civ 5. I'm pretty sure when I was younger, I played a lot of Civ 4 and I played a lot of this kind of, I don't know what it is. It was like a console knockoff of Civ 4 or Civ 3 or something called civilization beyond the sword or beyond the power or call to power civilization call to power (laughs) um but like you even though i've sunk a lot of hours into these games it was always in a very casual way where i just kind of sit back and play the game whereas for the podcast uh with us doing civ 4 this fortnight i've tried to learn and get better and strategize and understand the game on a level that i don't normally do with these games
1: yeah me too i find that um something about there being no campaign and no real like uh, you know risk of losing progress makes it a very relaxing experience overall but this time i too tried to uh, up my game a bit with uh mixed results but we'll get into that later
0: yeah, so um, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast each and every fortnight. We play through a classic uh, retro game of the past, usually from about at least 10 to 15 years old, but we don't have a hard and fast time or date. Um, we play it through, we try and understand the nitty gritty of what makes these games tick, and we make an evaluation of, of whether that game has truly stood the test of time and is worth playing today. Because, you know, with, uh, with Every Day, there are all these new brilliant titles coming out. And in a lot of cases, they invalidate and improve upon the experiences of 20 years ago. But in some rare cases, they do not. And there are gems hidden throughout history that are still worth your time to go back and play. So that's what we do on the show. We go back, we look at these games, we try to put nostalgia to one side and evaluate them fair and square And end up coming back to you and let you know if it's worth your time to play.
1: Yeah, we really like finding out if uh, those old games that people have been ranting and raving about are really actually as good as they've been saying because uh in a lot of cases I found that you know picking up a game that someone has recommended me from years ago just hasn't been the same for me as somebody who's playing it for the first time today so we try to we kind of try and slice through that uh you know that bl- blind fanboyism that a lot of people have and obviously their experiences are you know real for them but you know you can't really expect somebody playing games for the first time today to have that awesome experience uh, that you did when it first came out 20 years ago
0: so we played uh, civilization 4 uh, specifically we played civilization 4 beyond the sword so the original game was developed by Firaxis and released in 2005. over the next couple of years a couple of standalone expansion packs were released warlords and beyond the sword and the cool thing about the civ 4 expansion pack beyond the sword is that it was standalone for one thing and it included all of the previous content so when it comes to deciding what to play, you want to play Civ 4 Beyond the Sword. It's got everything the previous ones do and it works fine by itself. It was a little confusing figuring that out at first.
1: Got to make this awkward admission here where I uh, bought Civ 4 on Steam only to realize that it doesn't work like the newer games where you buy the base game and then the DLC on top of that. You actually have to buy Beyond the Sword as its own separate game. Um, you can't just add it on to a game you've already have. So, you know, maybe uh, don't make the same mistake I did um, and just get the, you know, the Beyond the Sword expansion.
0: I will say that for me, I was able to get the Civ 4 complete collection cheaper than the standalone game because of how this is how old school expansion packs before DLCs were a thing. They're packaged in unusual ways so when you see these sales, check the price of the uh, complete edition, because it might just save you a few dollars. Uh, so James and I both played Civ 4 without any mods. However, after poking around the internet, I found that there is one mod you should almost definitely just play with. It's called the Bug Mod. And what the Bug Mod does is it doesn't alter the fundamental gameplay in any way. But what it does do is take a lot of the information that's hidden from you on various advisor screens and just put it on the base screen in an easy to understand and easily accessible way. So um, it seems to me that that's a mod that you you can use that doesn't alter the gameplay experience. It just reduces the number of clicks you need to make in order to access the wealth of information at your disposal
1: yeah absolutely one of the problems uh with this game that i want to bring up later uh is your access to information when making critical decisions um so i think that anything that improves that is going to be you know a must-have for this experience
0: so what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time just explaining the kind of game that civilization is for those who haven't played them before and then we'll get into the substantive criticism so the first thing to understand is the genre that Sid Meier's Civ- Civilization 4 belongs to, and it's generally called a four-times turn-based strategy game. So four-times is an um, acronym that refers to the four E's, explore, expand, exploit, and exterminate. So uh, it's a large-scale strategy game. You spawn in with a very small force on a massive map, The map is littered with resources, so you need to explore your environment, you need to expand, so you need to settle cities in order to uh, control the environment, you need to exploit the environment, usually this refers to resources, so each game of Civ 4, the map is littered with a variety of resources, some of them let you build special units, some of them... uh, give you efficiency bonuses to different areas of your city and some of them are luxury resources that improve your happiness so you want to exploit all those resources to make your empire boom and finally and most importantly exterminate Uh, you're not the only person trying to explore expand or exploit there's other people competing for those resources in that territory so at some stage you need to uh get your army and you need to wipe out other civilizations in order to claim their territory for yourselves and that's four times in a nutshell um it's a pretty broad genre james have you um have you played any other four times games uh, apart from civilization
1: are you sure it's called four times and not four x? Surely it's called four
0: x. Does sound correct, particularly when it's Explore x. Yeah. <laughs> when there are four x's in the <laughs> acronym, so uh, correct, it is called four x.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure people will forgive you for that. But uh, to answer your question, um, other than playing Civilization five and six quite, you know, a lot, I haven't really dabbled in this genre too much. Um, I never really felt the need because these games are so. I guess expansive you know one was always one at a time was always just good enough for me I've never been super into them to the point where I wanted to explore every offering the genre has so my experience of the genre is limited to the civilization franchise
0: Uh, me too I also have very limited experience with the 4x genre as you can (laughs) tell by me completely misunderstanding what's written on my screen uh, I guess the closest is we've played a bit of Heroes 3, which will also be a comparison point. Heroes 3, I don't think it kind of halfway gets there, but the fixed way in which you expand uh, and the fixed structures that you take control of means that it doesn't feel like a true 4X game. Um, I'm sure I've dabbled here or there with some of the space ones, but because uh, a lot of the time this genre has uh, these, you know, galaxy spanning empires that kind of thing but i was trying them when i was younger i found them too complicated and i gave up so unfortunately for our listeners my main point of comparison is going to be civ 5 which which i think is good but my knowledge of the broader genre is pretty limited uh but you know i think uh i think as time goes on that'll change but uh, for now pretty pretty limited scope of experience with the genre
1: yeah, I generally expect Civ V to be a big point of reference um, moving forward. One of the big questions uh, we're going to be asking ourselves on this episode is, you know, if you're new to the genre or to the you know, franchise as a whole, is four a good place to start, or should you maybe start with one of the later games? Um, and I think that's going to be a pretty interesting point of discussion. So what I kind of want to start with from here is kind of to elaborate on the core gameplay of Civilization Four. Um, And how it progresses from the beginning of the game all the way uh, to the end. Because the Civilization franchise is a, it's like a historically inaccurate game um, that kind of has you play as one of, you know, Earth's many civilizations. For example, you can play as the British or the Americans or the Zulu. Um, from you know the dawn of time and have your empire kind of expand you know all the way to the end um, and obviously not historically accurate in the slightest in the newest games you can uh, be the modern Australians in the uh, the kind of the original area which is always kind of funny to me so uh, Pat did you want to give us a brief overview of how these games kind of play out
0: yeah of course so just to what well, we're just going to I guess explain you know, what it's like typically when you first start playing Civilization to roughly the mid-game, because the Civ games eventually enter a, I guess, something of a gridlock. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll take you through it briefly. So when the game starts, you select your Civilization. The Civilizations have a leader, and they have different unique units to give a little bit of variety and uh, identity to the faction you're playing. They're usually quite minor, um even less so than Civ V. Uh, you'll have a, a unique unit and a unique structure usually, um, a couple of unique starting technologies and then you're off to the races. But for the most part, regardless of which faction you're playing, your broad strategy is going to be mostly the same. The game starts and you have a settler and you have a warrior. You settle your first city and you start exploring with your warrior. Um, and this is the very much the exploration stage because you can only move your warrior one tile a turn unless they are lucky and stumble upon an upgrade or um, they win a fight against some barbarians and get some experience. And for every move your uh, city will get closer and closer to building a unit. And early on that takes a long time. It might take 15 turns for you to get your second warrior out of your city for example. So you start moving your warrior around bit by bit, exploring territory.
1: Yeah, so at this point you're kind of exploring the map and trying to find places that you might want to settle a second, third, or even fourth city as you play the game. Um, Places that you're looking for are, you know, areas with access to fresh water, uh, places with good luxury resources and high production yields, Um, because there's lots of resources that you have to manage in this game, like food for making your citizens grow, production for producing units and buildings quickly, um, and you know luxuries that make your citizens happy because you know they have access to gold and that's kind of decadent they love that um, so you know at this stage of the game you probably haven't met another civilization yet it just looks like you on your tiny little piece of the world um, and you're trying to kind of map that out so that you can plan your future expansion
0: Yep, and as you're doing this you're um you're researching so there's a there's a tech tree in civ 4 a pretty complicated one if you're uh, if you're unfamiliar with the game uh because there's just you're often presented with a list of like 12 different options early on it's a bit simpler than that um, and you can bring up the tech tree and you can see which tech filters into what and it will be like bronze working goes into iron working and so on and so forth or basic agriculture will lead you to eventually building plantations And depending on which way you push your civilization uh, research-wise, you'll have a very different set of strengths and weaknesses and combat units available to you. The research just ticks along by itself. Uh, You can sink extra gold into research or less gold into research. But... uh, one of the important parts of Civ games is eventually taking up, gain access to new and more powerful technology, and you get access to a lot of different technologies and buildings and units as the game progresses. You don't need to do a lot in order to research, it's just about clicking which direction you go. But the direction you go will dramatically affect the strengths and weaknesses of your empire.
1: Yeah, early on, I find that a lot of my decisions regarding which technologies to research depends very strongly on, you know, where I've settled my city and the resources that are available. For example, if I've settled near, you know, cattle, I want to get a pasture up and running. So I have to research, you know, agriculture and uh, animal husbandry um, so that I can improve the cattle tile. Um, and thus get more value out of it. Alternatively, if my start was near a bunch of gold mines, I want to invest early research into mining so I can build a set of mines and improve that tile. The way that getting resources in this game works is that your city will have a population size and these are represented with, you know, uh, low single digits. So when you start, you only have one citizen. So you can only, you know, get the resources from one square which is, you know, the square your city is on. Um, but a few turns later, a new a new citizen is born and you can put him to work, you know, on the tile next to your city that maybe has some gold so it has a bit of extra production which makes units produce faster. So you kind of want to line up your technology tree and your city growth with what's available on the map uh, depending on which city you're talking about.
0: And the, the other thing that guides you down different paths is uh, is is your unique units because generally um, every civilization has access to unique units and buildings which are usually pretty damn powerful so uh, if you're playing you know there's there's an arabic faction that gets camel archers. if you're playing that faction you want to try and tech towards camel archers because they're very strong but uh as james said i agree with him that the primary concern is definitely the resources available to you um so as you play you'll uh create a couple of cities, you'll meet a few other civilizations, and uh, now you need to start thinking strategically with your expansion. Because if you want to have swordsmen, you're going to need a source of iron. If you want uh, chariots, you're going to need a source of horses. Uh, this is where, for me at least, I like start doing what I call aggressive settling. So, in this stage of the game, uh, not all of the territory is taken on the map. Uh, most civilizations have two to three cities. So what I like to do, I don't know about you, James, is I like to settle my guys as far away from my base city as possible and then build my city inwards. And that way I'm kind of like grabbing extra territory for myself that does come at a cost because the cities have greater maintenance upkeep the further they are from the capital but it ensures that you have more room and i feel like room is very important in this game
1: yeah room is extremely important so when you settle a city um the borders of your territory are basically a big fat cross around uh, your city because civilization 4 is played on a square grid as opposed to 5 and 6 which are played on a hexagonal grid so What tends to happen early on if you make too many cities clumped up is that other civilizations will claim territory you know, around you and you'll kind of get boxed in. So early on, it is quite important to be make sure you're making these aggressive, you know, moves outwards in order to, you know, make sure you can expand far enough to get a variety of different resources. Um, because something that's very important in these games uh, is specializing certain cities towards uh, certain ends. You don't want every city to build every building and every unit. It's much more effective to, for example settle a city near a source of gold and silver and then have that city become your wealth generating city or you know have another city somewhere that can make lots of units really quickly so that you're not investing too much time trying to get every city to do everything but rather you have a balanced strategy um you know with a range of cities fulfilling the needs of your empire
0: yeah and the reason for that is that civilization 4 is at its heart a game of opportunity cost if you're spending if you're spending time and money building buildings, you're not spending time building an army. If you're spending time investing into research, you have less gold for other things. Every every time you spend time and money doing one thing, you could have been spending that time and money doing something else. So you can't be everything. You need to pick and choose. And I think that at least with Civ IV, it is much stronger to laser focus in on specific things whether it's research or as james said building specific things than it is to be a generalist civilization that tries to do everything at once
1: one of the things that makes the game quite compelling is that as the game progresses through the eras because you start in like the stone age of civilization and you eventually enter the modern almost futuristic era at the end where you know cities are massive every piece of land on the planet is occupied um, by a country and you know everybody is good at their own thing you know as you progress through the errors it's very important to be constantly re-evaluating the state of the world the state of your empire and adjusting accordingly it's like a constant set uh, of evaluations of you trying to figure out what the best thing you can be doing with what you need to be working towards um, and one of the things that makes the game so engaging Um, is that you never really feel like you're on autopilot you know you're constantly having things thrown at you that make you reevaluate. you know your strategy Um, you know civilizations declare war on you out of nowhere Um, you know sometimes uh, events happen where one of your minds collapses you know the game's constantly trying to get you to think critically uh, about what you're doing what you're doing with your turn um, and adjust for the given situation
0: yeah, so the the final stage that I want to talk about before we get into, I guess, the substantive discussion is kind of when you hit gridlock because, unfortunately for everyone, there is a limited set of resources and lands for you to settle upon and your city's borders naturally constantly expand. So you'll build all your cities, your opponents will build all their cities, and then you realize the whole map is covered with Either your cities or their cities and the territory that those cities control. At this point, there's no more unclaimed territory for you to claim. Maybe there's one or two bits on small islands across the sea, but that's it. So if you want to continue playing, well, you're going to need to uh, you're going to need to take someone else's land, and that's where the game really enters. I guess the what I would say the most substantive core part of the Civ experience, which is strategic war i guess all-out war or even limited war between factions uh and i would say you kind of roughly uh, past that there are little modifications that happen but that's the that's the meat and potatoes of civ 4 in my mind
1: okay that's interesting maybe that's the place we can start our discussion are you the kind of player that loves going to war patrick
0: so I'll I'll just jump right into this, because I think it's something, uh, I I have a conceptual understanding of how these Civ games operate, and you can can challenge me on it if you like. To me, when you first start playing a Civilization game, if you're a new player, uh, the temptation is to play passively, and that's because it's a very complicated game there's a lot going on. You need to manage all your cities, you need to manage your research, you need to manage your armies, you need to manage your tile improvements. Uh, If you're unused to all this shit going on, trying to fight a war at the same time is just going to be way too much. But I think that the more comfortable you become with the game, the better your understanding becomes, the more aggressively you want to play. And I think that that's where these games are interesting for more advanced players so i am not an advanced player of civ 4 by any stretch (laughs) but i have played a lot of civ civ 5 and so i was coming in with a decent i guess amount of knowledge even though the game did thrash me as first and we'll we'll get into that when we talk about learning curves but to me the natural escalation the natural way to learn and improve in this game is to fight and expand and take on other armies. It's not to sit in your designated box for 3,000 years and play the game defensively. That is an interesting and it's not ultimately a long-term winning goal.
1: It's funny you say that, because I'm exactly that kind of player that you described. To me, uh, the entire reason that Civilization V stuck out to me as a game I wanted to play was because it struck me as like, it's like an RTS, but... I get to play it like I want to play an RTS, which is making like playing it like Sim City rather than playing it like you know this game where you make a lot of troops and go and invade. I get to sit in my little box, build up this great empire, and then you know hopefully win um, some way from there. I kind of I'm kind of that really passive player. Um, although I will say, um, playing Civ 4 for the show has kind of pushed me a bit out of that, and I did have to start getting a bit more aggressive, a bit more you know expansionist compared to the way i would play five and six
0: i will say like don't get me wrong i don't think that playing passively is like an intrinsically bad thing and i actually think it's the best way to learn the game i think one of the fantastic things that civ 5 does is it lets you play passively and succeed but that can only keep you content for so long like at at some stage the you begin to understand how the economy and research and everything works and the game stops getting more complicated. If you just build four cities every single time and you're building the same set of buildings every single time and you're going for a cultural victory every single time, the game will start to get extremely repetitive. Uh, there's There's like a cap on how complicated and interesting the game can be. I think that at some stage to get the full nature of the experience to get the more inter- to get to the more interesting high skill cap part of the game you got to go to war with someone and then the game really opens up and it shows its true colors and depth
1: yeah i agree i think um this is kind of part of the learning well i mean we're kind of going into learning curve here right yeah let's go um, into that. and this is something that's good yeah because one of the things we criticized um heroes of mind magic 3 when we did it for was its learning curve And, you know, we've already played Civilization 5 and 6. But again, with this game, I found it a bit difficult to adjust because there's some major changes or differences between 5 and 6 to 4. Specifically, the square grid, the fact that units can stack on top of each other in combat, um, and a lot of the uh, additional layers of micromanagement in its citizens and the cities. Um, And for me, When I started playing this game, I think I started five or six games before I think I grasped what I needed to be doing um, and actually played a full game.
0: I'm talking all high and mighty about how, yes, I need to go to war because I'm such a great player. <laughs> this game kicked my ass. And this is coming from Me someone too. who's <laughs> played a lot of Civ Five. Like, my very first time uh, I played, uh, barbarians just attacked and captured one of my two cities. I was like, what is going on? A single barbarian just swooped in and took my city. Because in Civ Five, you can just, they have automatic defense, even when you have no units inside them. So I was like, I'll be right. Nope, I wasn't all right and after that there were a couple more times where i was playing and um i'd get into a war because i was playing around with wars and i would just get destroyed like i wasn't i wasn't ready for how powerful the other civilizations were even in fairly uh, early stages of the game so uh, however compared to something like heroes 3 i think civ 4 has a way better learning curve And the reason for that is there's a gradual build-up in the number of cities you have and the number of units you're controlling, as opposed to Heroes 3, which I think pretty much dumps a lot of complexity on you immediately.
1: Yeah, it was quite intimidating, even as somebody who played the other games, um, just how much more there was to manage. Although maybe that was you know, a byproduct of me trying to play it a bit more seriously than I normally do. Perhaps the other games do have this same complexity, but because I was approaching it in a different way, um, it was affecting me differently. But that said, I actually really enjoyed uh, getting my shit kicked in. I'm going to be completely honest, I never actually won a game over the past two weeks, um, I always lost, um, and I got a, I got close a few times, but I never was able to win a game. Um, and surprisingly, I had a lot of fun still. Whereas I think that in a lot of other games with steep learning curves, losing can be you know a really frustrating experience, especially in like online multiplayer games, and you know specifically single player games with a campaign, because when you lose you're kind of forced to play the same mission over and over until you win which can be really frustrating here however every time i lost i was like whatever i'll just boot up a new game right it just felt like playing more of the game rather than getting stuck at this really frustrating part
0: um i'll also say that i didn't win a game either i uh i I started (laughs) several games uh i quit out of about three of them um i did a lot of saving and going to war and then like 30 minutes later i'm like that was a very poor decision and reloading that save uh the game i got furthest in was a game where i got to the modern age i had successfully wiped out um, a couple of civilizations uh i was not I, i was either the strongest player or one of the three strongest players on the map but that map is like a long way from finishing, so I didn't finish. But I did get one of my, you know, fifteen tries to a reasonable state. So yeah, I uh, I agree with James. It was refreshing to be so heavily punished for your mistakes. The thing about Civ Five is sometimes you feel like it doesn't really matter what you do. Uh, yes, you, you can. You can definitely go to war prematurely and start getting your shit kicked in. But the the way the game is designed is that as long as you don't incur any penalties, uh, like there's, there's all these ways the game kind of forces you to play correctly. Like uh, happiness is the big one in Civ V. Happiness kind of limits the number of cities you have, limits the number of units you have. Uh, gold limits the number of rows you have, limits the number of units you have, and as long as you keep within those predefined limits, it's very hard to lose at civilization five You just kind of don't do anything that the game is unhappy with you for, and you'll win,
1: yeah, I have a similar experience in five when in five, I felt like whenever I was ahead, um like I'd kind of just win any like without focusing on something like. I'd be so far ahead, and then randomly I'd get a culture victory, even though I wasn't focusing on culture. Because it's kind of snowball y in that, you know, when your science gets ahead, everything gets ahead, and all of a sudden, you know, you're winning on every axis. Because the civilization games have multiple different victory conditions. Um, There's the obvious wiping out every other civilization through military strength. Um, But you can also win uh, a culture victory by having the most influential culture, um, you know, and impressing every other nation with your, you know, immense art and whatever. Um, And then, you know, you can also win a science victory by being the first person to send a man to the moon, I think, or colonize space. You have to build five different space parts um, that are very late in the tech tree. And once you have all five, you win. Um, the closest I got to winning is I was four out of five pieces on the, you know, the, the spaceship to win the game. Um, and I was sure that I was ahead of my, you know, my direct competitor who was also building the spaceship parts. And I thought I was just one turn ahead of him. And then this third party just won a culture victory out of nowhere. I had no idea where that came from. Um. Which is an experience that happens to me a lot in those games. I find it very hard to keep track of who's ahead and who's going to win. The game just kind of ends out of nowhere sometimes. But I agree with you. Uh, In Civilization 4, I feel like I'm heavily punished for my mistakes uh, as opposed to 5, where you can just do whatever and eventually you'll win some random way.
0: Okay, I'm just going to have a hot take here. Cultural victories are bullshit and uninteresting (laughs) and not fun. Uh, Sitting in your base, pumping out culture-producing buildings and hoping no one attacks you, and then you eventually win the game, that isn't fun. That's not a good way to do politics. And I was thinking about this, and I think the problem lies in the fact that the way you're interacting with your allies in these games is just kind of uninteresting. The politics isn't really anywhere deep as you'd want it to be, for it to be a anywhere near as compelling as the military stuff that's on offer. And I actually thought back to our time when we played our Archimedean Dynasty actually. Now Archimedean Dynasty doesn't have a politics system, but I was struck by a thing in that story. So basically you've got uh, the Western underwater civilization, you've got the Eastern underwater civilization, and then you've got the Arabic underwater civilization. And the Arabic nation uh, is nowhere near as powerful as the other two. However, it acts as kind of a political linchpin between the two nations to the point where when a war that broke out accidentally destroyed the, uh, the main station that this Arabic faction had, they ended the war and both sides rebuilt it. And I was thinking, James, that... If you were playing a if you were playing this Arabic faction, if you if you think about how that faction exists in that world, how it needs to politically maneuver around things with diplomacy and its culture and everything. I can I can foresee a video game that makes the politics and diplomacy side interesting, but it doesn't really exist in Civilization 4 or any civilization game for that matter. It's just bribing people and uh, hoping that your religion and culture overwhelm the, the other sides to the point where they're nice to you.
1: Diplomacy of these games is something I usually try to actively avoid past, you know, keeping people happy enough to not declare war on me. Although I was very unsuccessful in my second game where I got two people to declare war on me um, and then just lost the game because my military wasn't strong enough. Um, however... Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's generally not as in-depth or interesting as the way. Like, the interplay between the different factions doesn't really matter to you that often, I feel. Religion maybe it, matters. Maybe it does. Re-
0: religion, I was surprised at how much religion matters. If, you're, if you've are if you got the same religion as another faction, you're like best buddies. And if you don't, well, you're not best buddies. Everyone hates yeah. you,
1: yeah. it's It's really quite influential on that um so you know i mean overall i agree with you it's probably the weakest part of the game in my mind for all of the games Uh, especially six where the i think the diplomacy was famously bad for a long time and they've done a lot to make it better but it just doesn't quite work for me
0: so james do you want to have a quick music break and then we'll jump into the combat and the military stuff
1: yeah sure, why not? Um, I think the obvious choice for a music track is Baba Yetu. Everyone always harps on about how great this song is um, and I gotta kind of agree with them. it is pretty good, although I do uh, hot take prefer Civ Six's main theme. Um, Pat, did you enjoy Baba Yetu as much as the rest of the world seems to?
0: I did. I mean if you're going to come up with a theme that somehow <laughs> sums up the entirety of human civilization, this is a pretty good one and it's a pretty positive spin on human civilization. I think um, the Civ games at their heart are not very cynical, and if you were trying to portray human civilization, uh, you could definitely do it cynically, but they've always put a positive spin on humanity progressing to a more enlightened, uh, enlightened phase, and you know, the zeitgeist of humanities culture and science and everything always improving so you really get that feeling of triumph from this song so uh, yeah hit it
1: was baba yetu one of the most famous tracks in the history of the civilization franchise and a pretty damn good one at that um unfortunately for me i actually didn't much enjoy the rest of the soundtrack uh in civilization 4 to the point where i actually turned the music off um something in the past i've given patrick a bit of off the doing music off. how games. embarrassing yeah it make, makes me a bit of a hypocrite <laughs> here um And i don't want to say that the music is bad the problem with the music for me is that it doesn't feel like music that was made for the civilization core game experience and that is one where you're sitting in game for like four to five hours in a row maybe if your game's going for that long listening to the you know the music on repeat so for me a lot of these tracks were a bit too bombastic for you know the slow burn gameplay experience of Civilization 4 and they actually started like off really well only to get on my nerves like a hundred turns later and then I turned the music off because it was just you know on loop pissing me off.
0: So unlike you James I did actually listen to the music and at first I can totally understand why you would turn it off because the music tracks that play in the ancient and classical eras, which is where I also spent most of my time playing the game, are a little repetitive and boring and probably not perfectly suited for a game that goes on for hours. However, it's come to my attention and I discovered that the tracks for the later eras are not only far more diverse, they're also far greater in quality. They're all these medieval hymns and classical pieces of music all the way up to the modern era with uh, with John Adams composing all of the, he's a modern compo- more modern composer, composing all the tracks for that period. So I think you've kind of missed out in a way because you haven't had the opportunity to hear these otherwise really enjoyable tracks. Now, that being said, I am a complete dunce when it comes to my understanding of classical music. So it's not like I'm stroking my beard and going, wow, this classical music is so great. It's just uh, certainly a lot more pleasant to listen to than than the earlier eras. So I think that as you become a more accomplished civilization player and you can more easily escape those early eras without getting into ill-fated wars like you and I were doing, the more you will come to appreciate the music
1: so moving on from there pat you wanted to talk a bit more about the military tactics and the gameplay and i'm gonna have to lean on you a bit here because like i said i'm more of a passive player i think i only got into war like twice for maybe like less than 50 turns each so i'm gonna have to you know rely on you for this one
0: okay i'll do my best although fair warning i don't actually understand the all of the (laughs) mechanics of war on a really deep level Um, In fact, I had to do some reading outside the game, I looked up some strategy stuff to help me better understand how to win battles and things like that, because I didn't intuitively grasp how to best approach these fights. So, I may have my information wrong, I may not be suggesting what the optimal strategy is. But as I was playing, I came up with a more effective strategy than what I was trying to do. So I can at least relate an improvement in going in blind.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of the differences, uh, I think a lot of the strategy here is going to be in relation to the way uh, units stack compared to uh, five and six, correct? uh, Because in um, Civilization five and six, you can have exactly one military unit per square or hexagon rather they can't occupy the same square and attack as a group whereas in civ 4 what tends to happen are these famous doom stacks where you have a single unit occupied by like a hundred different units at once which can uh, at times make the battlefield a bit hard to i guess uh, understand at a glance yeah grok is the grok is the technical term <laughs> um, but yeah intuitively uh, I found it a lot harder to understand what was going on in battle than in 5 or 6, although I think there are some upsides to this system which we'll get into.
0: Yeah, I'll just spend a little bit more time explaining some of the nuances, and then we'll get into a discussion on how it, um, on how good it is, I guess. Uh, so, as James said, you can have any number of military units occupy any tile. You can have 5 units there, you can have 100 units there, you can have so many units there that it goes off the screen and you can't see how many units are there when you hover over it. There is no limit. When you attack a stack, so whenever you're the aggressor, your unit that's attacking will always be matched up against the unit that uh, favors the defender. For example, if a stack contains an Axeman, a Spearman, and a Cavalry unit, and you attack it with a Cavalry unit, then the spearmen will face off against your cavalry unit every single time. It's kind of like this intrinsic uh, advantage to the defender. The defender is always going to get the favorable matchup. If you attack with a big stack of units, because you can attack all at once, they'll just attack in sequence with once again, the defender getting the advantage every single time. So strategically, this means that defending is stronger than attacking. Um, the other big level up I guess I had, thing I had to understand was how to use how to use siege units and how to use collateral damage units. So the counter to units being stacked up all in one space is units with collateral damage. And these are usually the siege units, your catapults and trebuchets, and later on um, artillery and things of that fashion. So when you attack a unit with an artillery unit, they will still get the defender advantage against the artillery unit. But the artillery unit will deal damage to every single unit on the stack. So the way to strategically approach uh, these fights is to suicide artillery units into enemy stacks first and then follow up with your other units. Because if you don't deal that collateral damage straight up then your units are not going to win the battle against the advantage defender
1: yeah and the sa- it's especially true when attacking cities which have walls mm. and other kinds of defenses your artillery units can directly attack the defenses first um because if you don't do this if you don't remove the walls from a city um you're going to have a real bad time attacking into a city Something I noticed very early on is that it's much harder to siege cities in this game than uh, in Civ Five and Six early on because you can just stack like a hundred units on your city instead of having like one dude defending it. In both games, you need to wear down the city's defenses, but you know I found it a lot harder to actually take controls of cities in War here.
0: Well, so the thing is about Civ Five, and I know this is not Civ Five, but it's just my main comparison point. So I'm going to be talking about it. The way the wars tend to go is that you'd have a line of meat shield melee units on your front lines, and then I'd have shitloads of range units. Like I would say, yeah. three quarters of my army, if not more, was crossbowmen and archers and, uh, and trebuchets and things of that nature. You use your uh, your melee units to kind of clog up and protect your archers, and then your archers can attack over them. They're they're range units. Your your attack doesn't have a retaliation; they go into neighbouring tiles. That is not a thing in Civ 4. In Civ 4, yeah, the kind range of units, me up a bit. yeah, it well, me too. I was like, "What's going on? I've got some archers. How do I activate them?" In Civ IV, <laughs> range units generally have the first strike ability, which is a good ability, but it means but you can't just sit a bunch of archers at range and mop up enemy AI forces. They just become part of your stack. So. I want to say this all this is all like if you don't understand this I don't think you can succeed at winning Civ 4 like maybe maybe you were able to intuit some of this stuff James but before I looked this shit up the idea in particular of suiciding my siege units into the city to soften them up before sending my other units in uh that's something that I wasn't able to naturally figure out because it just feels strange to fight wars in that fashion like traditionally in history your trebuchets sit behind your forces and attack and you need to protect them whereas in this game they're kind of your like your front line that all die before you send your real forces in so i think you need to understand this in order to actually take cities and win fights against these doom stacks that our ai presents to you
1: yeah, one of the people that live with me has played a lot of Civ 4, so I got them to show me how combat works when this happened, mm, because okay. the very first time I tried to take on a city, uh, it ended in complete disaster, because I did not take out the walls, because I couldn't figure... Because I was trying to sit my catapults like two squares away, like in the other Civ games. Yep. Um, didn't figure out that I had to... Like, everything has to be exactly one tile adjacent. Um, didn't notice that there was collateral damage. Um, I did figure out how defending favours the defender um, through the unit matchups because I think if you play the games with animations turned on, it very clearly shows that happening. Although from what I was talking about with you, Patrick, earlier, you turn them off being a, uh, you know, having played Civilization for,
0: is the first thing I did. I did the same thing with Heroes 3. Like, like, first thing I did, I'm like, yep, put everything on fast. Fast movement, instant movement, instant combat, I don't have time to sit through these animations, <laughs> boom. But uh, yeah, that definitely played against my understanding of the systems.
1: Yeah, but like you, I agree. It is very hard to intuitively learn the combat in this game. Um, just look it up is my recommendation. Um, you'll have a much better time. Uh, it is, v- And it is absolutely key to winning games of Civilization Four.
0: Okay, so, so that's some of the kind of like nitty gritty individual parts of the combat that you need to understand i guess to get a grasp on how how to actually win fights but i also wanted to talk about the strategic implications of stacks and how it differs from a game like civ 5 so in civ 5 because you can only have one unit per tile your army tends to be fairly spread out because if you have five units they need to occupy five tiles and if an enemy unit breaks through your cordon of units, then it can only really be one unit breaking through because it can only occupy one tile at a time. And it becomes easier to deal with any threat posed by any one unit like because the army can only be so big at a given point. It all gets uh, clogged up and blocked up with this uh, one unit per tile system. In Civ 4, that is not the case at all. Because a single stack of 20 units only occupies one tile. So if you have an army on one part of the map of 15 units, and your opponent has an army of 15 units on the other end of the map, then you cannot ignore that army of 15 units.
1: It is just going to tear a hole through your empire. Yeah,
0: it's it's just going to cut through your empire. You You can't build reinforcements in time ...to contest that stack of 15 units... ...whereas the cloggy up nature of Civ Vs... ...means that yes, you can reinforce as a way to defend. What this means strategically... ...at least how in my experience playing the game... ...is that you need to take the fight... ...to your opponent's stacks. You cannot go on the offensive with your stack... ...if they have a stack that's in your empire... ...you need to retreat, consolidate meet the enemy in the field uh, one way or another before you can advance. Uh, It's difficult to say how I feel about this because I think that theoretically Civ Five could have quite a deep and interesting strategic combat layer with the one unit per tile system. But in practice, it ends up being this spammy, repetitive ranged heavy conflict where you just gradually tear your way through the enemy forces in this like long-term attrition plan civ 4 on the other hand feels terribly frightening at all stages whenever you're in a war because the opponent will have a stack of 15 units and if you do not deal with it you are going going to to lose lose. the game (laughs) yeah yeah so you feel kind of railroaded into dealing with enemy threats and enemy stacks. But in a way, I think it ends up producing a more interesting strategy layer to the game. Because you need to uh, basically retreat and defend more effectively. And you need to do more like, well, I'm going to lose this city, but I'm going to ramsack this city. And that will all kind of balance out and then we'll eventually meet in the field at this halfway point and hopefully I can retreat my forces to defend this key production city that has a couple of mines set up and then we can take care of that stack and then I can reevaluate where I am i had to make a lot of you know substantial st- strategic decisions like that in civ 4 whereas in civ 5 i felt like my units were this uh in ex you know like like this rolling tide that would eventually roll over the enemy forces given enough time
1: i think it's more of a side grade than either one system being better than the other um i think that having the stacked units and being able to move them all at the same time is enormously more friendly and more enjoyable to control than one unit per tile which i found to be incredibly clunky all the time it's such a pain in the ass to go to war in civ 5 and 6 because having a huge army you know you have to painstakingly maneuver everything around each other in order to get you know the right positioning whereas in civ 4 you can just select you know all 100 units on one tile move them together it's super simple super pain free i love that about it Um, although on the other hand you do lose lots of like strategic maneuvers such as you know there's two mountains if you place a weak unit between the two mountains you can hold back the enemy army for a couple of turns um, as they struggle to get through that unit that's standing there Um, and you know the surrounding blob behind it whereas i think that the stacks kind of murder their way through and slip through cracks a lot easier. And, you know, as you said, the, the, there's this lost positioning aspect that I kind of miss. On the other hand, though, I think that the AI in Civ 4 is much more able to effectively utilize their stack of death. Um, whereas in 5 and 6, I think that the military AI is complete dog shit um, and has no idea what to do with their units. Uh, and it's very easy to abuse um, that weakness in the computer. Um, And I don't think that's as present here. To me,
0: I would say it is overall an upgrade over the way combat works in Civ V. And that's just because I feel like in Civ V, I kind of am doing the same thing. Yes, there is some tactical nuance to the exact way in which you position your units, but it's not a very complicated puzzle to solve once you understand the basics like you can always kind of eventually get the position you want because there's only so many tiles and you can't do like deep strikes i there, there are paratroopers in civ 5 right i'm not going crazy
1: yeah i'm pretty sure
0: yeah so paratroopers i remember they added a layer that was kind of missing from the earlier eras but in general you hit a gridlock and no, At that point, maneuvering kind of becomes redundant. Like, you can, you're you maneuvering, but you're not maneuvering for advantage. You're just kind of following the same old song and dance of putting your tanky units up front and your your archers behind them. Civ four, I felt like there was a real... I really had to make decisions, particularly when I went to war with someone and all of a sudden I was at war with three people. And I had to be like, oh, shit. And I had to start figuring out how best to position my stacks to uh to not have my empire be run over in civ 5 when you're at war with multiple empires one empire will kind of send a token string of units against you that you can defend with a moderate force you cannot do that in civ 4 you need to have a plan to deal with a big army on every side
1: yeah and there's lots of little uh, implications to, to this um you know stacked tiles Um, One of the things in Civ 5 and 6 that I always made sure to do was have my first settler of the game settle near hills because they're a good source of production so you can get lots of units out quickly. Um, In Civ 4, I did the same thing and then... I lost a game because uh, the enemy moved their giant stack of dudes on top of the hill next to my city and that hill gave its defensive bonus to their entire army rather than in five that would only be a defensive bonus to one of their units Uh, and all of a sudden that fight was like impossible to take so it makes you know where you settle a bit different I think in that regard Uh, I always avoid settling next to hills now because of that. And there's, you know, a lot of nuance. Um, I think that regardless of whether one system or is better or worse than another. The fact that they are so different is value in and of itself. Something that struck me as, you know, something that should be obvious is that each Civilization game is actually a dramatic shift in terms of gameplay systems. For example, 4 to 5 is a very different game uh, than 4 and 6 and so onwards. And what this means is that I didn't quite realize how good this would be in reverse, right? Like going from Civ 5 and 6 to Civ 4 made Civ 4 feel like a brand new game because it was different uh, And there's value in that difference regardless of whether you know you know objectively the combat's better or worse um, just being different enough means that I think that the newer Civ games don't invalidate the old ones, but rather, you know, even if you've played shitloads of Civ 5 and 6, there's still a lot of value going back to 4 and playing it for the first time, because you've got all these new, you know, tools and strategies to work with and to figure out. Even if, you know, you play it for a long time and you eventually come to the conclusion that you like, you know, 5's combat better, I think that process of getting that point is really enjoyable.
0: Um, I completely agree. Uh, games being different and offering different experiences is always something to value. Uh, back when we did Thief One and Thief Two, one of the things I really like about those games is that, and the difference between them, is one leans more heavily into the fantastical Tomb Raider fan fantasy side of the game, and the other one yep. leans more into technology and steampunk and sneaking around mansions taking out guards and the fact that those two games offered different environments and different experiences is far better you know from the perspective of someone going back to play these games than if one was just an incremental upgrade over the other I still maintain that from my limited time playing Civ 4 that the combat system in Civ 4 is just more interesting because it's more difficult and stacks produce more more challenging to understand and deal with uh wars than the um than the hex based system of civ 5 at a high competitive level maybe that's not the case but at least in my experience i'm a bit bored of civ 5 combat whereas civ 4 combat pummeled me mercilessly and i want to come back for more
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that Civ 5's combat is probably much friendlier to new players because it's a lot easier to understand a battlefield at a glance with the unstacked units. Um, I think that the combat is more intuitive to understand. But, you know, as somebody who's also played a lot of 5, I did really enjoy having to come to grips with the systems in 4. So
0: I think that about wraps up our discussion of the gameplay. So I think we'll have another music break. Uh, so the song I selected uh, is one from the industrial era. It's called Hungarian Dance number one in G minor by Johannes Brahms. I want to once again emphasize that I don't really know how to criticize classical music. It's just when I listen to this one, it really appealed to me is probably my favorite of the bunch. So that was Hungarian Dance Number One by Johannes Brahms. So, James, we've talked about the gameplay a fair bit. Uh, do you want to move on to how information is displayed to you and how easy it is to read the information on the screen?
1: Yeah, so this is actually uh, a reasonable negative for me and a mark against the game. Um, so, Civilization 4 came out in 2005. And I don't think it was very, I'm going to say, future-proof to more modern hardware. So recently over Christmas, I splurged a bit and got a nice 27-inch monitor um, that runs at 1440p. So when I booted up Civilization 4, um, and tried to play it at this higher resolution. I noticed that the UI scaling uh, was definitely not made with this kind of monitor in mind because it became tiny and impossible to see. So I reverted to playing at 1080p and have it be a bit muddy and blurry just so I could actually, you know, see the information on my screen. Which, uh, in addition to not working as well on better hardware, I think that the way this game presents information is objectively worse than the newer games. Um, so, in your average turn of Civilization Five or Six, and we'll say we're playing like at the mid-game where there's like quite a lot of stuff going on, you'll get a series of notifications on the side of your screen. For example, you know your city has finished researching a technology, and now you need to decide what the next technology to research is. And then you've also got a stack of units to move, um, some diplomacy notifications you've got to deal with, that kind of thing. And you have to basically, you know, pick and choose and deal with everything and then you can end your turn. So in five and six, you can pick any of these things and deal with them in any order that you choose. You know, you can open up the menu and say, okay, I have to choose what research to do next. So I'll close that, look at my city, see what units I have, see what resources are near me, and then choose a technology that suits, you know, the game state. Uh, Civilization 4, what will happen is the turn will start, and then one of these will pop up on your screen, and you cannot close it uh, really until you've made a decision. So Uh, It'll say, you've finished researching this technology, choose a new one, and then I'll be like, okay, before I choose this technology, I want to know, you know, the rest of the information about the current game state, and then you try to close it, and you really can't. Like, you're kind of locked out from the rest of the information until you've made that choice, which I found incredibly infuriating uh, over the course of my time with the game, Uh, you can't even open up like the pause menu when these screens are up which was extremely frustrating like you can't do anything um it just it feels really old and dated and janky Uh, i i really did not like this aspect of the game at all
0: i'll just mention i agree with you it's frustrating you aren't locked into the decision you're making the way civilization works is that progress is always made uh in between turns or at the end of your turn okay sure. but it doesn't just for clarification, it doesn't uh, notif- It doesn't automatically notify you again. You need to manually enter the city that has production and you can change the production.
1: Yeah, so you need to like make a bunch of fake choices and then open it back up.
0: Yeah, and that way you're not as easily keeping track. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, no doubt.
1: See, the way I like to play the Civilization games is I like to play with the wait at end of turn turned off. So I'm not constantly pressing next turn on my space bar. Um, I can't do that in this game because once I've made all the choices, it automatically goes to the next, you know, the next turn. Um, And then I can't actually go and check anything.
0: You should not play with that option on ever. That's That's a terrible way to play the game.
1: Why? You can just not make the last choice until you're sure of everything, right?
0: Okay, I guess to me, I can't always easily understand what the last choice is. And I also at times will do something like, sleep a worker in my city if there's a barbarian and i like to check that uh everyone is able to do something at the end of the turn and check city production and all that kind of stuff
1: yeah you have a big list on the side of a screen in civilization 6 so it's very transparent when the turn's going Uh, to end i see uh whereas in this game i often felt like You know, I'd make a choice and then like six turns would go past, um, where I don't think that's the case in the newer games. And I had to play the way you do with, you know, pressing next turn every time. Um, It was really clunky for me. I did not enjoy the interface. Even like when you're picking a leader at the start of a game, the information that you've got is kind of hard to access. Like you've got to mouse over all these different things Uh, in different orders to try and figure out what a particular leader does it's like this leader is philosophical and um you know courageous what the fuck does that mean it you know uh, the leader picking screen in the newer games gives you all the information you need very clearly um you know and i kind of it kind of annoyed me every time i started a game
0: I, i have a ridiculous criticism when i first started playing the game and i wanted to pick my leader i didn't know how to pick my leader I was like, what the hell is going on? I'm like searching around the screen and then right in the bottom right of the screen, you can press done or next page or whatever. But I was like double clicking and I was really confused and but I
1: got there at the end. <laughs> that's, uh, I
0: managed to start the video game. So that was pretty good. I
1: don't know if that's the game's fault, Patrick. It sounds like a you thing here.
0: <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, the UI is a piece of shit. Even playing at my 1920 by 1080 resolution, whatever it is, all the icons were way too small. Um. I know this seems silly once again, but the bottom, you know, one quarter or one fifth of your screen is just filled with this big, empty blue bar. Like, it's just this big, empty blue bar with a tiny bit of things on either side. And I was always like, can't the game use that space in some way or get rid of it so I can see more of the screen instead of having all these tiny icons? This game, I assume someone has done a a font... Uh, fix to go with the resolution to get it properly working and widescreen. I saw
1: that floating around online, so if you can mod the interface to be better, I would highly recommend you do so.
0: Yeah, when when we did uh, Halo One, and this is before the Master Chief Collection was released, I we had to install a font fix basically to get it running at higher resolutions; <laughs> otherwise, it it didn't work. And it's the same thing here. Like you can't just the the UI gets scaled down too little um so yeah ugly UI I also want to say pretty ugly graphics I I think this game looks substantively worse than Civ 5 and I think it's more difficult to easily identify simple things like uh enemy borders you know the the colors of enemy borders blend more into the environment yes I think units don't as you, they don't as obviously stand out like yes you can see them but in civ 5 you know when an enemy unit is occupying a space with this one if you're not paying attention you could easily not see them because you know it's a busy map that's there's a lot of shit going on uh just the readability of the graphics and the poor ui end up it ends up being a pretty gnarly first few hours is you just need to learn to see everything that's in front of you
1: yeah i did get used to it eventually but this was by far the worst part of the game for me was the ui and the graphics and usually well i didn't really care about the graphics like sure they were blocky and low resolution but i usually felt like i could see once i got used to it i could understand and it wasn't like a huge mark on the game the ui however huge piece of shit i hate it
0: the other thing which isn't strictly UI, but which I think is feeds into the same kind of thing, is the way in which information is presented to you. And this is this is one of the areas where that bug mod that uh, I mentioned earlier would have come in handy, but, you know, whatever. We, we know now that it's correct to get it, and if you play the game, you should get it. But one of the things that's frustrating about the UI being as bare bones and empty and annoying as it is is that there is so much information concealed behind all of these screens that you need to access one at a time that they could have come up with a way to shorthand on the main screen.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I found it incredibly hard to intuitively understand the game state um you know there's a huge amount of information there's hundreds of units there's you know 10 different civilizations depending on how big you put the map size and is um and you know whenever i lost this game it was like wait i lost you know like somebody got a culture victory out of nowhere or something like that and maybe that's me being bad but i feel like i shouldn't have to learn the interface of this game the game should do a good job of conveying that like that's on the people who made the game like this isn't something i want to learn you know i want to get good at managing my empire not getting good at controlling the game in this instance i guess in some games i can see an argument for that being part of the experience but here i don't know i really didn't like the way information was conveyed
0: so the advisor system is one that has a historical legacy you know you've got all these different tabs with your different advisors that convey relative economic military strength you know different religions the espionage screen i i don't mind having detailed versions of this information hidden away on the advisor screen i just think that you shouldn't be clicking through menus endlessly to understand basic things. That That's my problem. It's not that there is information on these screens, it's that there needed to be a way to get the most important of that information more easily displayed and readily understood. Uh, okay. Also, as I alluded to earlier, just understanding the best way to approach combat, I think is something that's impossible to... Easy, well, not impossible, but it's very difficult to figure out without consulting outside help. So I think that uh, there could have been something one way or another to tutorialize or explain that suiciding seed units is the correct way <laughs> to use them. Because I, I don't know how you're meant to figure out that that's the best strategic approach without reading about it or you know maybe just spending hundreds of hours playing the game.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you want to spend 100 hours to learn the combat, that's fine. That's an experience you can have. Um, something I want to talk about um, is how good of a job compared to the other games of being immersive Civ Four is Because to me, one of the things that really characterizes the civilization games is the fact that you can go into a game... Uh, and then like five or six hours in real life can pass with your, you barely noticing. Like I get sucked into these games so hard when I play them. Like It's like you make all your decisions and you, you notice that, you know, your city is four turns off this really important research, which will then allow you to do all these different things in your empire and really kick off. But it's like a series of those events. You're like a hamster in a treadmill on a set of stairs. You know, every floor of the building has a newer and bigger carrot that you're trying to get to. And once you get that carrot, you look up and you see an even bigger carrot. And you're like, all right, now, you know, just a few more turns and then I'll have, you know... Uh, the space rocket and then just a few more turns and have satellites and you know it's this like constantly building treadmill that keeps you sucked in and you're just constantly like looking for that next little you know hiccup in your civilization's progress and civilization 4 for me absolutely delivered that in spades um you know sometimes when i wasn't feeling like playing a game for the podcast over the last two weeks i'd force myself into a game of civ 4 and then the next thing you know i'd been playing all night and having a blast. It does an excellent job of, you know, just sucking you into the game loop and keeping you there until you absolutely have to stop playing.
0: This is interesting because I think this is something that Civ 4 does worse than Civ 5. Um, to me, Civ 4 is ahead when it comes to its military, but I think that on the whole, it's a far drier experience. Uh, Civ 5 does a number of things better to give, I guess, unique flavor and more unique feeling experiences to how you play it. Uh, for example, uh, factions in Civ 5 are more asymmetrical and they have more weird stuff going on with them. Like yes. when you play Spain, you get bonuses for discovering wonders. So, when you play Spain, you just explore in every direction and try to be the first to find each and every world wonder. So, you're the, you know, so you can get a big gold bonus. When you play Venice, you can only have your own base city and then you need to negotiate with the city states. And just in general, to me, the best and most interesting addition to the Civ games are the city states. I love city states, I love how they give you little quests. I love that you can accomplish in order to gain their favor. I love how they have different kind of slanting whether they're military or economic. And I love how different they they add like this interesting layer of of uh I guess uh diplomacy that doesn't really exist with uh just the normal human player factions. So in a whole bunch of ways Civ 5 kind of like the games feel more flavorfully interesting to keep playing than the more dry, bare bones, but refined feeling of Civ 4
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I think that the variety of experience on offer from the newer games is much greater than Civilization IV. As you said, uh, there was a number of different strategies and completely different playstyles that I liked doing in Civilization V. One of my favorite ways to play was to play as Alexander and go, you know, all over the world, making friends with the city states and bribing them to vote for me in World Congress and achieve <laughs> diplomatic victory. You yeah. know, um, it was you just build up so much gold, and then before every vote, you just buy them out. It was, it was really funny. Um, but in Civilization Four. The leader bonuses are much more mundane uh, and they are actually like each leader has two characteristics out of a pool of like, I don't know what, like 10 or 12. Is it but 12? These, oh, yeah. I it's... don't know what it is. I'm just spitballing here. Oh, yeah. It could be some number. It's some number, right? Um, and each leader shares this pool and they just pick, you know, two out of this pool. So, you know, the half heaps of the leaders will be charismatic Um, heaps of the leaders will be aggressive you know there's not a lot to flavorfully distinguish them from one or another so i guess what i would do in four is i would think what kind of gameplay strategy do i want to go with be it science or military or culture and then scroll down the list of leaders and pick one that you know fit that the best whereas in five I would go through the leaders and think, hey, that looks really fun and give that a spin, you know. Um, I think that it does a much better job of having you try new and interesting things. Whereas, like you said, while I think the gameplay is very refined in 4, it's a lot less diverse. Um, specifically I think 4 does a better job of its micromanagement I feel like lots of the little nitty-gritty decisions I made in 4 felt more impactful to me Mm. than they did in 5 things like managing what citizens work which tiles in your cities uh, managing you know happiness per city rather than per empire
0: well let's let's talk a bit about that I want to expand on that because I think I think that's one of the big ways these two games uh, differ. Happiness,
1: yeah. Civ four to me is a much fiddlier game, but not in a bad way. That kind of gameplay where you're micromanaging lots of little knobs, um, I find you know quite engaging. Although it's a bit intimidating when you first dive into it. So, Pat, did you want to give us a you know broad overview of the happiness?
0: Yeah. So. Happiness in Civ 4 as opposed to Civ V, is city-centric. Each city has a happiness value, as opposed to having a global happiness value. So you can have some cities that are much happier than, than others because they're less crowded and they're defended by given military units. The effect of this, and Civ 4 punishes you far less for building up cities and armies and how that affects your happiness value so if you try to expand in civ 5 without obtaining a luxury resource per city you are <laughs> yeah. fucked you're going to be invaded by barbarians every few seconds so expanding in civ 5 feels like you must expand near luxury resources or you must secure trade deals, which get you luxury resources. But in reality, you kind of got to do both.
1: Yeah, every game of Civ V kind of boils down to you having like four or five cities max. Whereas in four, I felt like because happiness was you know per city and i wasn't fucking my whole empire by making another city um i did get to expand quite a lot i think it balances the tall versus wide kind of gameplay much better yeah much better than four and i think six heavily favors uh wider cities as opposed to five so you know this kind of balance is good and I guess one of the main things that struck out to me was how micromanaging the happiness was in this game. Um, So in each civilization, in addition to your technology trees, um, you also have access to civics like uh, social policies um, and they're handled very differently in each game. But one of the things that really stands out to me in 4 is the inclusion of this social policy uh, slavery, which allows you to... Sacrifice citizens for increased production. So, you know, if my town, if my city has three citizens. Uh, and I'm building a unit, I can sacrifice one of them to basically instantly finish the unit. And this didn't dawn on me right at the start, but eventually I realized that if I had an unhappy city because it was overcrowded, I could just, you know, enslave the population to uh, get rid of that and kind of, you know, micromanage that a bit more. And I found I kept that Civicon for the majority of each of my games because it gave me you know a lot of control over my individual cities.
0: Yeah, slavery is uh the optimal way to play the early game everyone. So uh yeah, because if you've got three unhappy citizens in an eight population city, you will get net happiness by slaving away some citizens. Yeah. <laughs> like it's is literally net positive. I do want to say that I understand it's a video game. I understand that it's purely mechanical and everything. But honest to god, I still felt uncomfortable with how slavery kind of exists in this game just because it's got such an awful historical legacy and it feels weird because Civ 4 is a game that's 15 years old and it's a very mechanical strategy game, but it feels wrong that it is mechanically optimal to use slavery. I feel like there should be some... I feel like slavery should carry some more significant penalty to better identify it as being an objectively evil thing to do. Slavery is a thing that existed in civilization. Like, it is a thing. And I mean, it was a thing that different civilizations used very effectively to their advantage. So it's it's complicated. But I just want to raise it as a thing that made me feel a little uncomfortable.
1: I did feel a bit like that too, um, which is kind of annoying because... As a mechanical function to the gameplay, I think it's actually a huge plus for the game, like being able to have that mm. little knob to tweak. Um, so, you know, although the window dressings aren't the best, uh, I think its inclusion actually adds a lot to the early game of your empire.
0: Yeah, Um. just on the note, uh, the I think the civic system, which slavery is part of, is actually excellent. Like, I actually like it even more than anything in Civ Five. Civ 5's, uh what's the early game policy tree where you choose like liberty or whatever what's tradition that
1: called? yeah the first three. Yeah, yeah so
0: that early game one feels very laser focused towards filling a particular tree out because the bonus you get at the end of it is incredibly strong so it feels very fixed you're like okay i'm gonna go down this exact path and then later on you get the more expanded uh policy tree but but you know with civ4 you get it immediately and i felt like i was able to better customize my my faction in exactly the way i wanted to as i started to unlock more and more of these civics so i i think the civic system is fantastic in civ4 and i don't know what civ6 does Uh, but
1: civ6 is awful i hate it
0: okay well i i think civ4 is the best version of this that i've i've encountered
1: In Civilization VI, um, when you unlock new... You have these, like, slots for social policies and you get, like, hundreds... You get, like, dozens and dozens of these policies, right? And, like, 90% Mm. of them are fucking worthless. So I feel like I use the same ones every game, whereas here... I did change the ones I used, but depending on my strategy. I, you know, changed hmm. policies quite often. Uh, I think it's a good system. Um, I, I liked it quite a bit as well. I do like fives as well. Uh, unfortunately, in five, you're kind of forced to play tradition like every game because it's a very uh, a tall centric game
0: or you do what I do and force liberty anyway, even though it's bad, Yeah. because I want to expand. (laughs) So I just always go liberty and just try and make it worth and cry a lot when it doesn't.
1: Yeah. Um. Here, slavery feels like you do it every game. Like It's on this node called bronze working, which notably also lets you chop forests for production, which is very powerful as well. And I think that... Like, there's this weird imbalance in the tech tree where I feel like it's almost always correct to rush bronze working at the start to A, have more control over your happiness and production, uh, and B, you know, just get a bunch of useful units out of the bronze.
0: I, I did the same thing, but I don't want to comment on what's optimal in the broad strategic sense because I'm sure. I'm sure the people who play Civ Four know that there are like three strat, like maybe there's a religion-centric set strategy that you can pursue that has its own advantages over going something like bronze working.
1: Yeah, probably. I barely touched religion in this game, which is weird because in um five and six, I always trained it super hard because I liked the way it worked
0: ethiopia baby yeah first religion every time (laughs) i feel like yeah i feel
1: like in four unless you start with a specifically religious leader it's really hard to actually found a religion yourself
0: I i think it i think it's like if you're a the if you start with one of the religious technologies then you're set and if you're not well enjoy being converted
1: yeah so that's kind of our thoughts on the you know the civics and the religion um Patrick, I'm pretty much at the end of my notes. Did you have anything else to add?
0: Um, no, that's about it. I'm happy to move on to final impressions.
1: All right, please, Patrick. What is your final impressions of Civilization 4? Do you think it's the uh, you know, the go-to game of the 4X genre or even the Civilization series as a whole?
0: Man, it's hard to say that when I'm so inexperienced, but, uh, but here's what I think. Um, I think Civilization 4 is a very good game. I think it's a very refined, strategic simulator. I enjoyed it a lot. I do not think if you have not played the four times genre before that this is a good introduction at all. I think if you've never played a four times game, if you've never played a Civilization game, you should play Civ 5 first because Civ Five is a really good way to get to grips with all of the all of the mechanics that are present in the game. Because if you haven't played a game like this before, there's a lot to juggle. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot of options on display. Once you have those basic chops, however, at some stage with these games, you're going to want to fight. You're going to want to go to war because that's where the meat and potatoes of this experience always is. And in that regard, Civ 4 is a superior game to Civ 5. I think if you've played Civ 5 and you're getting frustrated with how the co- combat works, then Civ 4 is absolutely worth your time to play. And I think that if you've played other four times, sorry, four X games, not four times games. If you have played other four X games, that Civ IV might be the best of the Civ series to try just because it produces the most interesting and difficult and uh, substantive Military combat situations for you to tackle with while also still having a really robust economy um, system to back it up. Civ 4 is a really good game. I recommend it. Just be aware that there is stuff with it that's unintuitive. You got to struggle with the UI and readability of it first. But at its heart, it is a very refined video game and it is well worth your time.
1: Yeah, I mostly agree with Patrick here, which is something that we don't see a lot of on this show. <laughs> um civilization 4 is a fantastic game and i loved playing it to bits um i lost every single game that i played of it and i fucking suck at this game and despite that i had a lot of fun And to me, that's like the mark of a brilliant game is one that no matter, you know, whether you do poorly or well, you have fun doing it, right? Like, every moment was enjoyable, every turn was addictive, and I, you know, just constantly uh, wanted to stay up a bit later each night to continue playing the rounds, you know, it's very fun. That said... I agree with Patrick that I think if you've never played a civilization game before, 5 or 6 is going to be the better place to start. I think uh you know, the dated UI can be really frustrating and you know, there's a lot more micromanagement here. Although I will say if you really do love that nitty-gritty stuff like I do, that this is also a great place to start as well. So, you know, for me, I highly recommend Civilization 4 as a lo- along with the rest of the games in the series. If you're a bit nervous about just jumping into the genre, do try five or six first. But if you are, you know, a sound veteran of the newer games and haven't come back to play four before, it is a very different experience, but also a very similar one. And that's a really great thing because it's it to me, it added this layer of freshness that the newer games have kind of lost. Having played them quite a bit. So, absolutely recommend Civ 4. I don't think, you know, I think that it being vastly different to the newer games is an outstandingly good thing. Um, and I think that I hope that people will continue to enjoy this game for years to come.
0: Yeah. And uh, I just want to once again reinforce with James the fact that it's different from the new games is a good thing because you can still get value out of it by going back and playing it. This Civ 4 has not been made redundant by Civ absolutely 5. Absolutely not. Six.
1: No. Yeah. Yeah yeah
0: all right uh, that about wraps it up uh james and i are the retrospectives podcast you can find all of our content uh on our website rspodcast.net we have all of our episodes there and we've also got a bunch of articles that we've written about various video games both old and new thank you so much for spending the time with us here today uh if you'd like to continue the conversation we would love if you would drop by our discord server uh we take game recommendations Uh, And we get into lots of arguments about what makes (laughs) video games good and bad. And why all JRPGs are a sin that should be removed from the face of the earth. I, I actually think I'm the only person on our Discord with that opinion. I was hoping to convince to, someone else convince that JRPGs other people? are terrible. No,
1: I think... Uh, I've, fa- I've
0: failed so far. I
1: feel like the general consensus is either people are agnostic about it or people really love them. So, uh, you know, a lot of Patrick angrily shouting into the wind with us trying to, you know, talk <sighs> under him about how great um, some of these titles can be. Um, strong opinions are something we don't shy away from on our Discord, and in fact, we like to encourage lots of arguments and you know, lots of lots of shouting matches, as they were. Although they usually do stay pretty reasonable.
0: Give us all the hot takes you have. Yeah, we I want to hear them
1: all. <laughs> yeah, we you know, the hotter the take, the better. We we kind of love that kind of thing on our Discord. We don't like uh, these circle jerky opinions. You know, uh, <laughs> hot takes are the name of the game. Um, so with that out of the way. Um, Patrick, you picked Dark Souls last year, and that means that I I get to pick two games (laughs) in a row. Isn't that excellent?
0: Listen, well, listen, James, the fact that I got to talk about Dark Souls makes this worth it. So, yeah. so I, I don't even mind. Like, go <laughs> ahead, give g- give me your worst. <laughs> what what are we playing next Fortnite, James?
1: Well, next Fortnite, um, I thought that we hadn't played a racing game in a while. Maybe episode was it like six or something around then that we did F Zero GX and uh, Patrick got his uh, teeth kicked in by the uh, yeah, James. By the difficulty. It's like, hey, James,
0: I haven't played any racing games before. It's like I know what's perfect for you. Fucking F Zero GX.
1: GX. Yes. Come on. Threw you into the uh the deep end of. that a pool there and i thought it was pretty funny you didn't actually get to the end of the game right
0: i played a lot of the grand prix but no i didn't <laughs> finish the campaign too
1: hard yeah so we were tossing up and we thought maybe we both like star wars pod racer and i was like that's a bit too close to uh a bit too close to patrick's whipping back then so let's choose something a bit more traditional but not too traditional because that's a bit boring. So we're going to go with Burnout 3, a game about smashing up into other cars and uh you know having a blast doing so. Have you played any of the Burnout games before, Patrick?
0: So, I haven't played played them. I, a friend of mine owned a Burnout game on Xbox and I just remember we repeatedly played this one stage where there was an intersection and you had to create the most possible damage you could possible like just by running into the middle of this intersection and that's all I know about (laughs) Burnout 3 so I'm I'm hoping there's more to the game than just that one intersection but I guess we'll find out
1: yeah absolutely so I'm looking forward to that on the next episode of Retrospective so thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time